0: I'm delighted to be joined by Eve Singler. He's a prolific author and one of the people I most respect about his analysis when it comes to political movements and democratic processes in Canada. So, thank you so much for being with us today, Eve. Thanks for having me. Now, for many people, elections are. Um, I guess, an indication of a democratic process. We've seen the elections in the U.S. and we are left with mixed feelings about the new government elected when it comes to policies, you know, in the Latin American region. What are you hoping for? And what are some of the sovereign stories that we need to remember as we move forward in this new Biden era?
1: Well, I think Biden will probably calm down with the most uh, uh, extreme uh, positions on Venezuela, uh, which the Trump administration, of course, has been um, pretty pretty uh, wildly aggressive on in terms of sanctions and different efforts to, uh, to oust the, uh, the government there. Um, Biden is probably gonna be a little bit less aggressive. But I think that the broad outlines of U.S. policy uh, won't change uh, that much, uh, if you even look at sanctions on Venezuela that began with uh, with Obama during the Obama administration, so that Trump ramped up uh, aggressively. the The Biden uh, crowd is um, a little bit less hawkish. Now, the flip side to that is they're also. I think sometimes a little bit more uh, sophisticated in how they operate the empire, and uh, some of uh, uh, Trump's really kind of uh, brash uh, public comments were not uh, helpful to uh, to their aggressiveness. So, for instance, when Trump sort of kept talking about invading Venezuela, that's uh, something that's uh, difficult for the. Uh, other uh, members of the Lima group of countries, uh, South American countries, opposed uh, to the Maduro government, that's um, difficult for them to, um, to associate with or align with. Uh, um, so that makes uh, some of that coalition uh, building in terms of building opposition uh, regionally to, uh, to the Venezuelan government, that makes it a little more difficult. You know, in policies on Nicaragua and Bolivia, where they've, um, you know, there've been efforts at hosting the government or uh, actually success on that front, which was of course uh, defeated with the uh, the uh, mobilization um, that demanded elections in Bolivia, and then and then the massive election victory. Uh, I think that Biden will continue with the policies of. Uh, U.S. of supporting different forces within the military, different uh, the sort of soft imperialism of, of funding uh, opposition groups, the National Endowment for Democracy and other type uh, type organizations that will uh, that will continue. Uh, under Biden, and, and may even uh, may even expand. Um, so I think in the in the short term, with regard to Venezuela specifically, where it was clearly the most aggressive campaign going on, that will probably slightly soften, but not uh, not substantially.
0: From a Canadian perspective, we southern. Seldom- think of Canada as an imperialistic nation. We think of the U.S. as a nation that invades and coerces uh, people to give up their resources or put up new governments that are friendly to corporations in the U.S., but we never think of Canada as an imperialist nation. Why is this a wrong um, or perhaps misguided tale that we tell ourselves?
1: Well, it's wrong because there's an absolute abundance of evidence to suggest that Canada uh, does act uh, as a, as an imperialist force internationally, uh, mostly uh, in alignment with uh, with Washington, uh, but uh, with very substantive um, uh, national uh, interests, specifically Canadian corporations. Uh, That are driving uh, a lot of the policy. Uh, So in you know in Latin America there's uh, a couple hundred billion dollars worth of Canadian uh, uh, mining companies' uh, investment, and the uh, the Canadian government uh, works very uh, aggressively to uh, um, advance the Canadian companies operating in Mexico or in Ecuador. Dominican Republic to uh, to help them in their operations, and a lot of that help is is fairly benign, just at a simple level of you know, uh, bringing together Canadian mining officials with uh, people in the uh, the resource ministries of the different countries, uh, and then some of it's uh, uh, less benign, um, like trying to rewrite countries' uh, mining codes to better serve. Uh, foreign companies, like has happened in a number of countries, most uh, infamously in in uh, Colombia, where Canada helped completely rewrite Colombia's mining code, that uh, greatly greatly improved the uh, the prospects for foreign mining companies to drop the 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 royalty rate they had to pay drastically, and then even more uh, aggressively, uh, you know, situation like in. Uh, Canada's role in trying to overthrow uh, Venezuela's government, or its uh, its support for the the coup against Evo Morales uh, a year ago, part of what's driving those policies, part of what's driving those policies is support for Washington, but also part of what's driving it is that those governments um, were viewed as uh, as uh, hostile or not not fully subservient. To uh, Canadian mining companies and, and Canadian companies more generally, Canadian banks, which are also very big players in the hemisphere. Um, so, so you know, Canada is a is an imperialist force. I mean, there's there's a history, long history of Canadian um, military uh, uh, interventions in the hemisphere. You go back to uh, 1921 when Canadian naval uh, boats were uh, sent off the coast of Costa Rica to. Uh, to pressure um, the government there to, to repay an odious debt to uh, to the Royal Bank of Canada uh, to early 1930s where Canadian naval ship was uh, backed up a, um, uh, a dictator in El Salvador that was killing t- thousands, I think tens of thousands of people. Um, and, uh, it was viewed as, uh, an uprising, indigenous peasant uprising against, uh, that was viewed as, you know, communistic by, uh, by British and uh, Canadian officials. And, uh, a naval vessel supported, uh, the massacres there, um, to, uh, you know, 2004 where Canadian troops, um, with the U S and French, um, invaded Haiti to help, uh, the U S Marines, uh take the elected president uh, in the middle of the night and um, put him on a plane and dump him in the Central African Republic. There's a, a long history of, of corporate Canada being uh, imperialistic or you know, very much being major players in the hemisphere and extracting large sums of profits. But there's also a whole history of you know, the Canadian state um, from the diplomatic realm to the aid realm uh, to the military realm of uh, very much um, supporting those those companies and supporting a whole um, a vision of, of Latin America and more broadly in the world of one that is, uh, is you know, open for business from the standpoint of uh, uh, Canadian companies and, and other international uh, corporations.
0: I'm glad that you point out not just the very diverse ways that, you know, Colonization t- takes roots, whether it be economic, or in many cases this idea of foreign aid. The impact that ha- it has had in nations like Haiti, um, but also I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the role of sanctions and why uh, sanctions from Canada on a country like Venezuela are are so important to notice and to be uh, and to be res- you know uh, resisted by Canadian people.
1: Well, the first thing with sanctions that people need to understand is that um, unilateral sanctions generally uh, contravene international law. And so the uh, primary uh, body that has the the legal authority uh, internationally to to, uh, adopt sanctions is the United Nations Security Council. And that's not to say that all sanctions that the United Nations Security Council adopts are ipso facto uh, moral. at least they are, uh, you know, legal according to international law. The unilateral sanctions uh, that uh, impact a country's ability to uh, get food, get medicine, um, just have general you know, viable economic affairs should be understood in part like a, you know, the n- medieval siege. Of a city, right? Where you just you know cut off a city from its ability to get access to food or other you know forms of sustenance, and you basically just wait the uh, the enclosed city out until people uh, either die of starvation or or you know try to really engage in battle or or you know give up. That's part of what sanctions are are, are designed to do uh, today. Now. In case of Venezuela, it's very clearly the case. What the U.S.-led sanction campaign, which Canada has um, supported, uh, four different rounds of sanctions uh, against Venezuelan officials, um, what it's designed to do is to basically have Venezuelans give up and, and get rid of a government that Washington and Ottawa don't like and to, to concede that, um, you know, stop stop the pain um, and it's very clear that uh, if uh, Maduro is, is overthrown, that the, uh, there will be a re- reduction or, or an end to the U.S. sanctions. Um, so that's, that's the political objective is to cause enough pain that, that people or the military or different forces within the country um, you know, oppose their government. Um, and so it's, uh, <clears throat> it's very dangerous uh uh from the standpoint of, of uh, i mean obviously, there's huge consequences on the on the populations who are suffering from the sanctions and, and, and uh you know during this uh, covid uh, 19 pandemic um there's been calls from the secretary general of the united nations to uh to uh, end sanctions regimes or pause sanctions because of, you know, the pandemic and the need for uh, um, different forms of, you know, international support, medicines, uh, whatnot, um, which if the U.S. has taken the total opposite uh, attack and they've, in fact, uh, ramped up their sanctions during the against Venezuela, against Iran, against many countries uh, during the uh, a, a pandemic, this is an area that gets almost no... Uh, discussion in the dominant media but as a general rule, uh, most legal authorities uh, conclude that um, unilateral sanctions violate international law. So right away just on that level people should be uh, opposed to sanctions or at least very uh, uncomfortable with Canada violating international law. But beyond that um, the sanctions uh, are usually tools of the powerful to uh, to to punish the weaker, to uh, to follow uh, whatever political uh, uh, position they want, and uh, and uh, and it's a very uh, dangerous and troubling uh, form of, of international affairs when the uh, the powerful um, uh, uh, adopt such measures to uh, to uh, force sovereign countries and sovereign peoples to, uh, to to succumb to their will.
0: Now, in many ways. I think it's important to notice how a country treats its own people as evidence of, you know, what it is capable of doing abroad. When we look at Canada, we look at the way that were subaltern people have been treated by the Canadian government, the way that Indigenous people in this country have been denied rights to even potable water in some areas, you know, to be denied any kind of... um, respect over their lands that are unceded, and where we're seeing pipelines being forced upon them. So can we talk a little bit about this level of colonialism that is ongoing today? Because, you know, in many ways we think of colonialism as something that happened 500 years ago with the boats in Columbus arriving in Latin America and the French arriving in Canada. But we, we don't think about colonialism in the 21st century, what it looks like today, what it does to us today.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that to understand Canadian foreign policy, one way to understand Canadian foreign policy is to understand that Canadian foreign policy is rooted in empire and rooted in Britain colonizing um, Turtle Island and uh, and obviously dispossessing Indigenous people. That's the sort of uh, the beginnings of Canadian foreign policy. And and so I think to a large extent, that process has just been... um, Pushed outside of what are you know, current day Canadian borders. That's what Ottawa, that kind of, that kind of thinking of, of um, white supremacy and capitalist accumulation, which was uh, driving um, the, uh, the dispossession of, of Indigenous people, and to a large extent still continues to, to drive uh, Ottawa's relations with, with Indigenous people within uh, current day Canada. That, that process has uh, pushed outwards. As you mentioned, I mean, it, it continues of you know the battles over uh, over uh, over indigenous land, and uh, you know, 99% of the territory has been taken from from, <clears throat> from indigenous people within within Canada. Those those battles continue, and they flare up with you know uh, serious races, as we've seen with the uh, um, uh, uh fishers out in uh, Nova Scotia, and and uh, the Woodswichen and pushing pipelines through unceded territory, and uh, you know different um, uh, struggles and around uh, uh, expansion onto uh, um, Mohawk territory here in Montreal, and, uh, and so so that that process uh, continues. I, I have to say that I think that um, we 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 do think need to uh, understand that in in my estimation of Canadian politics is that as aggressive as Canadian colonialism is internally, um, there is constituencies and uh, political power pushing back against some of the the worst abuses. Um, And I think on international affairs, um, as much as Canadian colonialism is uh, alive and aggressive domestically, you know, you can have op-ed in the Global Mail that talks about uh, genocide of Indigenous people uh, internally. Uh, you do have, as much as it's, you know, the whole political system is warped, you know, Indigenous people do have you know, votes. And so they do have some MPs in the House of Commons are, to some extent, standing up for their their interests. There, there is political structures... Uh, as much as the Assembly of First Nations, for instance, is a, is a, you know, at one level a tool of colonialism. At another level, it does provide some uh, form of of, uh, of political pushback to the worst of of Canadian colonialism. On the international sphere, the mythology of Canada's being a benevolent force—you you cannot get an op-ed in the Globe and Mail that said Canada was a is an imperialist power. That's just not acceptable. It never appears. In you know major media outlets, uh, there isn't uh, 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 you know constituency. There's no you know equivalent to an Assembly of First Nations that provides some political pushback to the most aggressive uh, elements of Canadian foreign policy. So uh, my reading of things is that as bad as um, the ongoing dispossession of of Indigenous people is within Canada, that in fact Canadian foreign policy is substantially more um, driven by corporate greed and empire and racism and, you know, a, a lack of concern for for, uh, for humanity.
0: It's important to notice also that, you know, sometimes the places where we are most um, aggressed are also the places where greatest resistance, you know, is... Um, sparked. And in the case of Venezuelans, we have seen how the Venezuelan people have withstand. Almost two years of, you know, an attempted coup with the rise of Guaido in January 2019 saying, I'm the new president and immediately Canada and the U.S. say, yeah, this is the new president. Without any uh, regard for what the people have elected. Now, Venezuelans are going back to elections on December 6th. Why is this a key moment for both uh, Canadian social movements and people to be in solidarity with the Venezuelan people and to um, ensure that these elections are not only respected, but that the will of the P- Venezuelan people is uh, honored. Yeah, well,
1: I, I, I mean, I think this is the, the conclusion to the two-year uh, farce of uh, Juan Guaido as a, as a legitimate president of Venezuela. That there won't even be the most minimal um a uh, claim to legitimacy, which was that Juan Guaido was the uh, the head of the National Assembly, and uh, and therefore in the elections, of Maduro's 2018 election, that, that was illegitimate, and so therefore the head of the National Assembly um, should be the was the rightful president. That was the claim that Juan Guaido's uh, supporters put forward, and uh, and obviously taken up and. Concocted probably by Washington and Ottawa, um, and uh, so once the elections take place, that Guido's uh, electoral mandate and the rest of the National Assembly that that got behind him uh, um, initially, that they, they their uh, their mandates are no longer uh, oper- operational, and therefore uh, the the claim of Guaido as being president will just be will be. Uh, um, uh, completely uh, uh, nonsensical, and it's already the you know that process has been playing out for months and months, and just recently Guaido's representative in the UK um, quit, um, partly as part of this whole process of the the opposition uh, within Venezuela uh, deciding that Guaido's whole um, claims uh, were were you know, dubious and they were counterproductive and. Much of the opposition in Venezuela is no longer um, uh, supportive of Guaido. They kind of got pushed behind this, this this plan that Washington, Ottawa, and Guaido pushed. And you've got to remember that this is Guaido represents some of the most extreme elements of the opposition. Right? There's there's differing uh, viewpoints within the opposition, and, and the more mainstream elements of the opposition were never. Huge supporters of this this plan, uh, they generally got you know fell fell in line, but they um, were generally not supportive of this sort of all-out um, push towards what could have very well turned into a civil war. And so, so I think from the standpoint of um, you know Canadian solidarity-minded people, um, we need to you know, follow these elections closely and. We're, Presumably, the Canadian government will condemn the elections as illegitimate, and, and uh, um, but I think we need to push the idea that this is this is really the end. This is a disastrous uh, Canadian policy. To, to stop with the 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 farce and let's let's you know reestablish diplomatic relations with Venezuela. Let's uh, begin sort of getting back to some sort of normal state of affairs. And and it's important to note that. You know, the Ukrainian government, of course, will claim that these elections are, are illegitimate, but um, and and I think that they are at one level. In that, the the, the biggest uh, uh, anti-democratic element to the process is that they're basically being um, uh, starved into voting against the current government. That's what the whole sanctions policy is designed to do. It's designed to put this pressure on the population, on the different institutions to, to reject uh, uh, the government. That's not to say that the Venezuelan government, the, the, the Maduro government, has not uh, made uh, decisions that I disagree with or that I think are uh, um, you know, undercut you know, democracy. I think they have. They have made those decisions. But those decisions have been in a context of what is essentially a war, Economic and sometimes attempts you know, more mili- militaristically, um, a, a whole war against their government and, and and against much of the much of the population. So um, these elections, I think, could serve as a a springboard for a, a, a fundamental uh, reevaluation of of, uh, of Canadian policy towards Venezuela.
0: As far as the government of Canada uh, policies of um, colonization imperialism, uh, there's also I think a very vibrant movement within our, our you know within Canada that not only supports Indigenous sovereignty and right to their lands, it also supports um, the right of other countries to elect who they wish as their president to be led as they wish to lead themselves so uh what inspires you uh, in terms of what you see today in latin america and um uh, is there any movements that particularly inspire you that uh, despite the pandemic you know we are we are moving towards creating a society that's more just for all people
1: well i think what happened in bolivia um, Is quite a quite a inspiring and fascinating <clears throat> uh, political movement dynamic. And basically, there was a pool a year ago. Uh, it was violent uh, by historic terms, not that violent, but 30 35 people were killed, uh, many many people forced out of the country, uh, many people arrested, um, and the coup government claimed it was just going to be there for a short period it was just going to set up for a proper democratic election was that they're framing and then they extended they extended they extended then they used the pandemic to justify extending their mandate longer and finally people um said enough's enough and took to the streets uh strike uh blockades uh, uh said we want an election and we want you know a firm date uh for that election so basically and then once election came they won in in uh surprisingly uh, uh large numbers when i say they won i mean the the former party the political party of ivo morales the uh, movimento socialismo um uh and so it was a it was a a very a powerful mix of uh, social movement uh, activism uh, you know blockades general strike that forced an election and then a uh, an overwhelming uh, victory at the at the polls I wouldn't probably shouldn't exaggerate this but it's going to make right-wing military coups a little bit more difficult to to pursue uh, going forward because of the the uh, the success of the of the opposition, of the mixture again of of social movement activism and, uh, you know, political party uh, uh, victory. Um, so I think that that's a very uh, inspiring and exciting uh, uh, recent development.
0: Thank you again for being with us today.
1: Thanks, Lily. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves.
0: Latin Waves is an internationally
1: syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com. Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows to access resources or support our efforts towards social change via community project engagement. Thank you and bye for now.